0: Well, while we're meeting over here, our summer series is on great and precious promises uh, that God gives to us. Last week we talked about um, uh, 7,000 promises that somebody had counted in the Bible. And I said, if I preach nothing but those promises and preach 47 uh, Sundays a year... That it would take about 149 years to preach through those. Now, this week I read that somebody else has counted the promises, and that there are 3,573 promises in the Bible, and that the word promise itself occurs over 50 times in the King James translation. Now, I did the same figuration. That if I preach 47 weeks on nothing but the promises, it only take us 76 weeks. So if we got started earlier, we could have made it maybe all the way through all these promises. Well, we can't do all of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to highlight some of the, I think, some of the most powerful ones, some of the most needed ones uh, as we go through these weeks together. Last week we talked about uh, John 5:24 and the need to claim eternal life. And today we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, and we're going to talk about claiming the promise of salvation. God promises us salvation. Now as we go to the book of Romans, we'll see that, that uh, Romans is, uh, is Paul's writing, the Apostle Paul's writing. It's a great theological treatise that he is writing. It's basically his theology that he expounds upon all the way through the book of Romans. When we come to this section of Scripture, he's talking to us about the, the word of God compared to and the law of God compared to the freedom and salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. And it gives to us a very, I think, familiar, but at the same time, a very easy way to understand how we can claim the promise of salvation that God offers. So eternal life last week, and then how we claim uh, the promise of salvation this week. Look with me at Romans chapter 10. We're going to start uh, at at verse 5 and read through verse 13. Paul writes and says, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. Now here's the great promise that we find here. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that's a fantastic promise, isn't it? That God promises salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, besides being uh, Paul's great theological treatise that he writes here in the book of Romans, we also find something else. It's one of the great plans of salvation, how you explain it. Uh, Through the years, I don't know how many different methods of evangelism and sharing the plan of salvation have come out. Evangelism explosion and dare to share and... Uh, all kinds of those, Those, those you might remember some of them. Uh, but we also find here in Romans, and literally in Romans, four steps on the Roman road to salvation. You're familiar with those? You've seen those before, haven't you? Four stops. First of all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. And step two is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, that's Romans 6.23. Stop three is, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the ultimate sacrifice that God made. Catch the significance of that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then we come to where we claim that promise in the Scripture that we just read a moment ago. And that is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Wonderful steps. Anybody could follow those steps. Anybody could take them and explain those steps in that process of explaining the plan of salvation. Now, before we come and analyze this passage of Scripture, Romans 10, basically 9 through 10, but all the way from 5 all the way through, I want to take a little test here and just see how well... We we understand our need for salvation if we all want to go to heaven. Okay, so here's the question: How good do I have to be to go to heaven? And it's multiple choice, so it'll be pretty easy. Okay, how good do I have to be to go to heaven? Pretty good. Is that good enough? No. Shake your heads. Yeah. Anybody say yes? No. Okay. Really good. No? Still? No? Well? No? Okay. Now here's where you come it's easier easier for us to do this. Better than and you fill in the blank. Okay. Some notorious person. Like Scar from The Lion King, right? A kid? The Evil Queen from Snow White? Uh, Star Wars movies, Kylo Ren. Okay. Uh, what's that guy in North Korea what's his name yeah okay pretty serious dictator okay all you have to do is be better than those people why do we do that see we all have our kind of test of righteousness and goodness we all have our standard of that and we always measure ourselves by somebody who's worse than we are right Okay? So you could add to that list, you know, my brother or my sister, brother-in-law. Let's beat up on brother-in-laws today. All I got to do is be better than that old deadbeat brother-in-law I got. (laughs) Or you you can say, all I got to do is be better than the person sitting next to me. Well, this is not a competition, okay? Remember that. All right. Letter D. Perfect. Huh? Whoa, wait a minute. You're shaking your head no. You. Huh? So you're like the 9 o'clock crowd. They said that we ought to have a letter E to none of the above. Right? You're all flunked because you do have to be perfect to go to heaven. Oh, so I see some heads over there sh- nodding. Yeah, you got it. I don't know whether you got it after the fact. Do you understand that all along? Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. There you do. You got to be perfect to go to heaven. Why? There's no sin in heaven. You got to be perfect there. So I had the question is, how do we get there? How do we, how do we become perfect? See, that relative scale of goodness, comparing ourselves to somebody else, doesn't cut it. Because goodness will never get you into the kingdom of God. It'll never get you into heaven. And if you want to talk about making comparisons on the level of goodness, you know who God measures your goodness against? Jesus Christ, how do you stand up to that? Hmm? We all fall short of his divine glory and righteousness. But at the same time, God demands perfection if we want to get into heaven. His standard is absolute perfection in thought, word, and action 100% of the time. So how do we measure up to that? Not too good, right? So what are our choices? What do we do? you got two choices. You can either work hard enough, and from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, to the day you're born, to the day you die, you work as hard as you can to be perfect. Will that work? You can't be perfect. So the only other option is we have to have someone perfect to be perfect in our place, because we can't be perfect. That's the promise of salvation that God gives to us. He brings into our life through faith the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when we experience Jesus, the Bible teaches us then we become perfect. That's the beauty of His love for us. The beauty of His love for us. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments, how that happens, okay? But... Let's break this passage of Scripture down with three things you need to walk away from here with today to understand about what Paul is writing to us about this promise of salvation, okay? The first is to claim the promise of salvation, you must recognize that you cannot save yourself by keeping God's law, okay? You can't keep God's law, specifically relating to the Ten Commandments. Now, that's why he begins in verse 5. And he says, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. And the man who does these things will live by them. What does, a, what does a life live by the letter of the law bring into our life? Frustration. Because you can't live by the letter of the law. You can't live by the letter of the law. The harder we try, the more we fail. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the fact that we cannot live by the letter of the law every day, every minute of every day from the moment we're born to the moment we die. We can't do that. So the rationale is either you live by the letter of the law and you keep that perfect law or you don't. And the reality is, you have to remember, is that God doesn't grade on the curve. He has a standard that he measures by all the time. If we can't live up to the letter of the law, what happens? You mess up just one time and you're doomed to hell, right? Because you're a sinner. That's what, that's, that's, that's the reality of it. You know, Paul wrote, and, and he says in one of his writings that he wouldn't have known what sin was if it hadn't been for the law. So said that that's one thing that the law teaches us, talking about the Ten Commandments. You break them and you understand that, that 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 you understand that's what sin means, to break the law of God. All right, so you gotta, you got to recognize you cannot save yourself by keeping the law. The second thing is, to claim the promise of salvation, you must, recognize you, you must recognize that Jesus has done for you what you could never do. That's what Paul writes about in 6 and 8. He says, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. What Paul is doing is he's quoting from Deuteronomy 30. And it's Moses' last message he's going to give to the children of Israel. And he is saying that God has done everything that he could during this period of time to reveal himself to them. Now, while some are saying, what we need is just more, I just need God to reveal himself more to us. And Moses is saying, he's already done that. He's revealed himself to you. And somebody said, I wish that God had done more to make himself clear. And Moses is saying, hey, he gave you the Ten Commandments, ten simple rules of the law. How much simpler could it be? How much more could he give of himself? And so that's why Moses says to the people, The word is near to you, not far away. It's in your mouth and in your heart. You catch those words together? It's in your mouth and in your heart. And you see how that applies to the gospel message? If God has spoken to the law, how much more has he spoken to us through Jesus Christ? And so what Paul is saying to us in Romans 10, 9 through 10 is that God promises salvation and then he provides salvation because we could never earn it on our own. We could never earn it. We never buy it. We could never live up to it in perfect righteousness on our own. So what did he do? He met our need by providing the perfect one to make us perfect. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to take our place. And that's the beauty of 2 Corinthians 5 21. That ought to be no matter whatever your life verses are this ought to be one of them. He made him who had no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. We're made perfect through Jesus Christ. You see when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ you experience salvation. We can't do it on our own. Jesus did it for us. He paid for our sins. He stood in our place. When God looks at us now if you're in Jesus Christ He doesn't see us as lost sinners. He doesn't see us as imperfection. He sees us as righteousness through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then what did God do? After Jesus died He brought Him back from the dead. He has raised Him back up to Heaven to His rightful place and there He sat where He seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us that's why verse 8 says but what does it mean the word is near you it is in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith we are proclaiming that's an often overlooked verse but it sets the table for what Paul writes to us about this plan of salvation that you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth and then look at verse 13 again there's that wonderful promise of salvation Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful promise that is. You see, some promises you find in the Bible are for specific individuals at a specific time in his or her life. Some of the promises you find in the Bible are for Israel. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the promises made for Israel as the nation of God are promises for the nation of the United States. That's not just, it's totally different. Okay? Then there are some promises in the Bible that are for everybody. This is one of those. This is one of those. He just simply says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved. He makes that possible for us. Now, let's get to verses 9 through 10. To claim the promise of salvation, you must truly believe in Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord and Savior. And this is where Paul takes from the Old Testament and says that the word is near you. It's in your heart and in your mouth. And how Paul brings it then into these words, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead... (laughs) you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Now think about those three simple words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. If he's Lord of your life, you ought not to have any trouble saying those words Jesus is Lord. Do you have any fear of condemnation when you say that in this country today? No. But I don't think we understand the significance of it back in first century Christianity. If a man would stand in Roman society under Roman dictatorship and say Jesus is God there wouldn't be any problem with that. But if he were to say Jesus is Lord what would happen? At least he would be arrested maybe flogged probably stoned to death. Right? Why? Because there was only one Lord then and that was Caesar. So this was a direct defiance into the face of the Roman government and Caesar to say, Jesus is Lord. And these early believers said that at the risk of their life, Jesus is Lord. Why don't we claim that more often? Why aren't we more bold in claiming Jesus as Lord? It's very simple to come to that point of understanding. God makes it as simple and clear and plain as he can. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. He didn't want to complicate salvation, and he didn't. It's very simple. It's believing. Believing in Jesus. Let me make two statements about saving faith, believing faith, salvation faith. True saving faith is a matter of the heart that is shaped by the facts of the gospel. What well, are the facts of the gospel? We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, but God loved us and sent Jesus to die in our place, even when we were yet sinners. Jesus died on the cross literally, he was buried in a tomb. On the third day, he was resurrected by the power of God. God brought him back to life. He ascended into heaven and he sits there in the glory of the Father. Those are the facts. But saving faith also is a heart response to the facts of the gospel. When you've got the facts about what God did in that plan of salvation, and you understand that God sent Jesus perfect in every way to die for us who were imperfect and unrighteous and never could attain perfection on our own, your heart ought to be moved with something. A sense of gratitude, a sense of love, a sense of commitment to Him. That's why it's so important that Paul put heart and mouth together in describing saving faith. See, that same faith includes committing your eternal destiny to Christ. It means that you understand the seriousness and the significance of your sins and the seriousness and the significance of the act of Calvary where Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice for us all. Now, the second statement about saving faith is that true Saving faith confesses openly that Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. It's more than just saying lightly, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Praise the Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's the response that leads to a commitment of a lifetime. You believe in your heart. You confess with your mouth. And you live your commitment. Now, the issue we have is that there are all kind of factors that you could bring into play. To say, well, you know, what about this? Or what about that? What about all these good things that I've done? You know? What, and always reflecting the questions, what about what about the Jewish people? What's going to happen to them? You know, will there be Jews in heaven because they're sincere about what they believe? What about all these other different beliefs out there? Can they get me to heaven? You see, you start dealing with all these other factors that are out there. All it requires is a simple act of faith in the truth. That's why there's knowledge of the facts of the gospel and then a heartfelt reaction to that. Do we want to play on your emotions? Some people say, I don't don't, don't want to go to church. I don't want to get caught up in that because I, I don't want my emotions to sway my mind. Well, we don't want you to get carried away by emotions, but you know, being a believer is an emotional experience because you ought to have a feeling in your heart about God's love for you. Somebody loves you, that's an emotional experience, okay? So let me see if I can make this analogy. You ever heard of the name Charles Blondin? Anybody remember that name, Charles Blondin? In the 19th century, he was the most famous tightrope walker in the world. And on June 30th, 1859, he became the first man in history to walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. He walked over 1,100 feet on that one tiny little thin rope, 160 feet above the raging waters of Niagara Falls. When he got to the other side, 25,000 people were there, and they just cheered and cheered him on. Well, that wasn't the end of it. He stayed there for days doing different types of things. On one day, he walked on that tightrope across Niagara Falls on a set of stilts. Can you imagine that? Yeah, guy's nuts. <laughs> on another day, he walked out there with a chair and some kind of stove. I don't know, I'm just reading the facts. I don't know what kind of stove, whether the Coleman stove they had back then or what, I don't know. But he sat down, lit up the stove, and he cooked an omelet and ate it right there on that tightrope. On another day, he carried his manager, piggyback, on his back across. On another day, he took a wheelbarrow with about 300 pounds of cement in it, and he rolled that across. And when he got to the other side, there was a crowd gathered there, you know, watching all these things. And he said, hey, do you believe I could put a man in this wheelbarrow and take him across on this rope? Oh, yeah, everybody, oh, yeah, yeah. there's another guy there like David Ball sitting right there. He said, yeah, 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 you can do it, go for it. And Bronner looked at him, he said, get in. And the guy didn't get in. Why? He analyzed all the facts, you know, and he said, no, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not trusting him to do that, okay? God says, believe. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. And it gives us that wonderful promise that calls for faith, simple faith. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. And everyone, he says in verse 13, everyone can be saved. You know, we, we talk about ways that you can come to make that commitment. A simple prayer, Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned, I've fallen short of your glory, I repent of my sins I confess my sins I trust you as my Savior I ask you to come into my life you know that it, we, we've used those prayers like that for a long long time but nowhere do you find anywhere in the Bible in a plan of salvation do you find that prayer that you pray for that I'm not gonna knock that because a lot of people I believe have come to genuine faith in Christ as they prayed that prayer but the bottom line is to accept God's promise of salvation is you have to come to that point in your life where you simply open your life and you say father by faith i believe that what you did through jesus christ is adequate and and i trust you and i ask christ to be the savior of my life i turn my life over to him i repent of my sins turn away from my sins and i come to you and by faith i believe that jesus is who he is And God makes it that simple. That no matter how lost you are, you can be saved. No matter how guilty you are, you can get rid of the guilt. No matter how many doubts you have, you can have all those doubts erased in one simple act of faith. If you believe and confess, you will be saved. Let's go back to the test for a moment. How good do you have to be to go to heaven? Let's see if you get it right this time, okay? Pretty good? No. Very good? No. Better than David Ballster or anybody else, whoever? No. Perfect. Everybody understand that? Okay. And God makes us perfect through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's no small spiritual truth to claim. That is a wonderful fact that we are righteous in the sight of a righteous and holy God. And it assures us that what Jesus did on the cross satisfies the righteous demand of God. For his wrath upon sin. So here's what I say to you today. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Claim God's promise of salvation. Father we thank you today. That in your love for us. Rather than condemning us. And our sin. You sent the Lord Jesus Christ. Your son perfect in every way. To die on the cross for all of us who were imperfect and lost in our sins. So that your promise of salvation would be made true for us. Father, I pray today that anyone has not yet claimed the promise of salvation. That he or she will come today to simply say, Lord, I, I, I believe in you. I confess that you are Lord with my mouth. I believe you raised Jesus from the dead. I confess that. I understand the facts. And my heart is overwhelmed with love because of what you did for me. And, Father, I pray that there will be many who make that decision or affirm the decision that they've made in their life. So that they can live in the joy and the glory of knowing that they've been made righteous in your sight through Jesus Christ who died for them. Father, we thank you for that love. And we want to claim salvation through that, through Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord. Amen.